your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Welcome aboard. Special guest coming up a little bit later in the show, uh, Leah McGrath, who's a dietitian, and uh, she'll be speaking with us from North Carolina. And she's made a career out of trying to unconfuse people about what they eat. And she has some interesting ideas. We will have a very nice chat. But first, let's talk a little bit of uh, epidemiology and talk about uh, Richard Dahl. And uh, the question is, when you're an epidemiologist and you carry out some studies, uh, do you ever get convinced that you should make some sort of change in your life. And in this case, back in 1950, Richard Dahl, based on a study he was carrying out, did make a change. He gave up smoking. Dahl was a physician who during World War II served in the Royal Army Medical Corps, but after the war, he was looking for different areas of research and he developed an interest in epidemiology. Well, what is epidemiology? It's, it's the branch of medicine that studies the occurrence and possible causes of disease in different groups of people. So uh, very often they will take a look at, at people who suffer from a certain disease, let's say diabetes or heart disease or, or, or cancer, and see what in their lifestyle may have been responsible for, for the condition. There are various ways of carrying out such studies. There are the prospective studies whereby you enlist volunteers and you follow them over time to see what happens. There are the retrospective studies where you have people who already have a disease and you question them about their history, etc. So anyway, Dole got very interested in, in the study of epidemiology, the possible causes of disease in different groups of people. <clears throat> but during the first half of the 20th century, doctors had noted an increase in the rate of lung cancer, and Dahl, with colleague Austin Bradford Hill, undertook a study to investigate why this may be the case. So they went into hospitals and they interviewed 700 lung cancer patients in 20 hospitals in London. And it didn't take very long, based on the questionnaires, to discover that the most prevalent common feature was that they were smokers. And you would have thought that, you know, this, this should have been obvious long before. I mean, people should have noticed that, that, you know, you inhale smoke, that that can't be good for you. But up until about 1950, no, there was no case being made uh, against smoking. Anyway, halfway through the questioning, Dole became so convinced of the link between lung cancer and smoking that he gave up the habit. Their initial study was published in 1950 in the British Medical Journal, noting that the risk of developing lung cancer increased in proportion to the amount smoked. And uh, it was found to be 50 times as great among those who smoked 25 or more cigarettes a day as among non-smokers. That was pretty compelling. In 1951, the two researchers went on to organize a prospective study. What did they do? Well, 
they got a list of all of the registered physicians in the UK and wrote them a letter asking if they would be willing to periodically fill out questionnaires about their lifestyle and their health status. And they had a pretty good response. There were some 40,000 physicians who responded. And uh, you know they filled out questionnaires about their diet, about their health status, and of course, about their smoking habits and, as well. And by 1954, uh, the preliminary results were clear that there was greater incidence of all kinds of disease among the smokers. And that actually prompted the government to issue advice about the relationship between lung cancer and smoking. That was 1954. And it came about in a very interesting way. Health Minister Ian McLeod announced at a news conference, quote, it must be regarded as established that there is a relationship between smoking and cancer of the lung. Interesting, but it was a very curious news conference. You know why? Because McLeod didn't seem to be too bothered by the relationship. He was chain-smoking through the whole press conference as he was telling people of the relationship between lung cancer and smoking. <clears throat> Responses from the physicians were collected intermittently until 2001, and there were more revelations. Heart attacks occurred more frequently in smokers, and smoking seemed to decrease life expectancy by as much as 10 years, with 50% of all smokers dying of a smoking-related disease. In addition to lung cancer, kidney, larynx, neck, breast, bladder, esophageal, pancreatic, and stomach cancers were also implicated. And cancer and heart disease were found not to be the only problems. Emphysema, stroke, chronic bronchitis, premature births, high blood pressure, also were more likely in, in smokers. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting when you look back to think that up to about 1950, there was no outcry against smoking. In fact, physicians smoked. They smoked when they treated patients. Professors smoked. I remember when I was an undergrad, uh, which was a bit after 1950, it was in, in the 1960s, professors still smoked in class. And there would be cigarette butts standing you know, on the uh, lecture table in front of a room uh, by the end of the lecture. Uh, of course, not all of them did that, but uh, some certainly did. And you know, th there was just no outcry against that. It's also interesting that prior to 1950, not only was smoking not regarded as dangerous, it was sometimes even touted as, as being beneficial as a treatment. During the London Plague of 1665, children were actually instructed to smoke in their classrooms. And in 1882, in a Bolton outbreak in, in England of smallpox, tobacco was actually issued to residents and they were urged to smoke. And then a paper in The Lancet in 1913 described experiments showing that tobacco smoke destroys the bacteria that cause cholera. But perhaps most interestingly, uh, in uh, 1774, two London doctors came up with uh, an idea about reviving people who had drowned in the Thames River. And their idea was to use tobacco smoke. Now, obviously, people who had been fished out of the river uh, were no longer capable of 
inhaling tobacco smoke. So they came up with an apparatus, believe it or not, uh, by which tobacco smoke would be administered through, let us say, the real portals, through the rectum. And there was a long tube, and there was a gizmo uh, into which tobacco smoke would be blown, and with a tube it would uh, travel all the way to, to the rectum. And uh, there were actually uh, these pieces of equipment uh, that were uh, placed at various positions along the Thames River, very much like today. You have defibrillators. And uh, if someone was fished out of the river, uh, they would have tobacco smoke pumped into their body from the rear. Of course, not likely that anyone was ever revived by that. All right, so that's our story about smoking. But now we're going to switch and talk about nutrition with my guest, uh, dietitian Leah McGrath, who's going to be joining us from North Carolina. And we will commensurate about the difficulty of getting sound scientific information out there. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome back. Uh, my guest is dietitian Leah McGrath. And I asked Leah to come on the show because uh, uh, we kind of think alike. Um, basically, we're in the business of separating sense from nonsense. And uh, Leah does that from the viewpoint of a dietitian. And uh, in uh, 2014, she launched an effort called Build Up Dietitians, basically to mobilize dietitians to uh, make sure that the proper information is getting out uh, to people about n nutrition. So, uh, Leah, uh, tell us a little bit first about uh, you know how you got into this, what your background is, and how you became interested in, in sort of going public with uh, information. So, uh, I was basically probably a second, second or even third career dietitian. I um, got into the field in my 30s um, because my father had type 2 diabetes and I was really fascinated by the intersection of his health and nutrition and food. And so I had a whole other life before that. And then I um, was an army, a dietitian in the army. So I went through my internship, my 1200 hour internship with the U.S. Army and I served as an officer and dietitian in the army. Boy, that must have been a challenge, telling the soldiers oh, what to eat. <laughs> well, you know, um, yes, it definitely is. It's a lot like working with professional athletes because they have a lot of the same uh, active duty soldiers have a lot of the same uh, uh, nutritional requirements as an athlete does in many cases, but a lot of other challenges as well because many of them are coming from a position of um, maybe not being very active and then having to go into an environment that requires a lot of stress, both um, uh, both physical stress and mental stress. So they they so weren't trying to they weren't trying to convince you that Twizzlers and potato chips were the way to go. Uh, no, <laughs> not usually. They no, not usually. Um, and then I was in public health um, for a short time, about a year and a half, and then I spent most of my career as a retail dietitian in the supermarket space. But, uh, yeah, I just, um, so I started the group Build Up Dietitians in 2014 um, for a variety of reasons. And one of them, as you said, was that I really wanted to kind of shine a light on 
supporting more evidence-based and science-based information. And um, yours is definitely one of the sites that I often look at and highlight in um, what we share out. Well, certainly, uh, I mean, you know, those of us who are in this kind of business of demystifying science got into it uh, partly out of frustration. Uh, when we just saw, you know, the tremendous amount of, of silliness and outright nonsense that is out there and uh, what people can actually believe in. And uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me, you know, just when you think that you've heard the, the craziest thing, something new comes along. But let, let me get back to your career. When you say that you were a supermarket dietitian, what does that actually mean? What does a supermarket dietitian do? Well, it, it's very hard to actually say what one thing supermarket dietitians do because it really depends on the retailer that you work for. Um, some do medical nutrition therapy actually in the store and that's referred by physicians in the community or local hospitals. Um, I work in more of a public facing informational uh, capacity. So I don't do one-on-one -on -one counseling. I do articles. I have a radio program. I do TV segments. Um, I answer questions that come in by email, and I do quite a bit of social media as well. So I don't see people one-on-one. -on -one. It's more, um, you know, bigger message messaging. So let me ask you this. What, what do you find these days is the most disturbing thing in terms of, you know, the, the plethora of uh, misinformation that, that comes at us mostly from the Internet? Well, I think it's actually that, that there is a plethora of information and that when I talk to our customers, when I do presentations or I do store tours, I find that some of them are so overwhelmed that they are, um, it causes them anxiety to actually go grocery shopping because they hear so much and read so much and they are so conflicted about what to buy it and you know am i buying the right thing am i buying the healthy thing is this harmful in some way because i saw something on my facebook page that somebody shared so i think it's just the sort of deluge of information that people are subjected to on a constant relentless basis um so uh, i live of course in north carolina and about two hours from food babe and i know that you've done <laughs> segments about Food Babe, and she was very influential in our area for several years, and she sort of dropped out of the limelight. Yeah, I think she's quieted down a little bit. Oh, yeah, definitely. But people like that um, don't help uh, don't help the situation at all because they ratchet up that level of food and ingredients in our food. Now, the Food Babe is a very interesting example, you know, in, in terms of disseminating information that is, is mm -hmm. by and large incorrect. Because I, I, I think she actually believes that she's doing the right thing. You know, oh, she, yeah. she's self-delusional, but she's not an out-and-out -out charlatan. I'm, I'm right. you know, I'm much more disturbed by the ones who are out there fully knowing that what they're saying is nonsense, but they're somehow making money off of it. So, oh, yeah. you know, there's the, the two kinds out there. But, you know, uh, as, as we were you know, mentioning, I mean, there's this deluge of information and it kind of divides, uh, as I see it, into, into two categories. Uh, there is the information that is telling us that, you know, everything is dangerous and, you know, the, the, the glyphosate alarmists and the MSG alarmists. And then there are the others 
who have the answer to everything, who tell us that, mm-hmm. you know, if you just drink tomato juice or eat goji berries, everything is going to be okay. The, the superfood folks and the food is medicine kind of folks, yep. Yeah, and it's very hard to navigate, uh, you know, be, uh, these people because, um, you know, when we look at these issues, we look at it from the scientific perspective with, you know, background in, 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 in uh, chemistry, biology, and, and physics. But people who don't have such background uh, are very easily swayed one way or another because these days, you know, you can find uh, information, if you're willing to cherry pick, to back up about anything, Oh, exactly. I can remember about a year ago, a woman wrote to me and she said, and I can't remember what the ingredient was. Uh, and and she said, uh, do you know uh, how I can find a certain type of product without this ingredient? And I said, why do you why do you think this ingredient is bad? And she said, well, all you have to do is type that ingredient name in and say, is it bad? And look at all the results you get. And I said, well, <laughs> you could do that with almost everything you eat, like purposely look for the negative. It it is there about virtually everything, whether it's you're talking about strawberries or pineapples or, uh, you know, avocado, you're going to find you you can, if you look for the negative, you will definitely. Absolutely. And that's why I always tell people, first of all, when you find some information, look to see where it's coming from. What is the origin? Is it a mommy blogger or, you know, is it something that was published in the Lancet or, or New England Journal of Medicine? It makes a, it makes a big difference. And, uh, you know, the, the trouble is that very often the bloggers uh, are very seductive. That's what they do. Uh, they're very good at cherry picking data and uh, twisting and turning uh, the facts. Anyway, I'd like to talk a bit more specifically, I'll, you know, about some of these issues. But we've got to take a break. Uh, my guest is dietitian Leon McGrath uh, from North Carolina, and uh, we're going to continue our conversation. You're listening to the Doctor Joe Show. Science you can use the Doctor Joe Show on CJAD 800. with dietitian Leah McGrath. Uh, she's uh, in North Carolina. And uh, we are kind of on the same wavelength in trying to, to make sense of all of the uh, tremendous amount of nutritional information that is out there. Uh, Leah, one of the, the uh, issues that I get asked about so often are pesticides. And mm-hmm. people are, are you know very, very concerned about this, especially glyphosate. And I'm sure you mm-hmm. get a lot of questions about that too. Yeah, sometimes from some people. I, I think what's important for us as professionals in this space and dietitians or, or scientists or even phys- and physicians is to realize that um, the average quote-unquote person has so many other things to worry about that oftentimes we just we hear the loudest voices. And if you actually get down on the ground with people, they're just worried about putting food on the table. How's it, how does it taste and the price? So um, sometimes I'm really surprised that those questions don't come up more when I'm talking to people one-on-one or in groups. Yeah, that's a very good point. And uh, yeah, this is something that I, I have also noticed because uh, those of us who live in this world, you know, <clears throat> right. and we're always scrutinizing the information and then looking at the papers that get published, 
we kind of get the impression that everyone else is looking at this too and are worried and you know whereas uh, as you say uh, most people just want to get on with their lives and and the ones that are in the alarmist camp are the ones that squeak the loudest so we you know we tend to to think that there's more concern out there than what there really might be but uh, you know i i mean i get a a a lot of questions about about pesticides and uh, a lot of this uh, uh, revolves around the fact that, that people want a risk-free existence, mm-hmm. which, of course, is, is impossible to achieve. There's risk with everything. And, of course, pesticides are potentially dangerous substances. They're designed to be potentially dangerous. I mean, they're right. designed to kill pests, I mean, obviously. Yep. And uh, with uh, glyphosate, which is you know in the news just about every day here, uh, in any case, uh, especially now that uh, Austria has decided that they would no longer allow the use of glyphosate. Roundup, mm-hmm. of course, is the uh, trade name for it. And then uh, people go crazy about this and start worrying about the trace amounts of uh, of this residue that may be found in their Cheerios. Right. And one of the, the um, uh, I, I guess, points that I try to get across most is that if there is some potential risk uh, in occupational exposure, but you know, to farmers who use uh, huge amounts of glyphosate, usually inappropriately, and that there may be a slight increase in their risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, that that has absolutely nothing to do with the parts per billion of glyphosate residue that might be found in a food. And I, I constantly emphasize that in science, numbers matter. You know, we we always have to keep abreast of the notion that only the dose makes the poison. You, you get this idea too, that, that uh, or you get these yeah. kind of questions about the trace amounts of chemicals found as well, residues? Un- well, unfortunately, what happens a lot of times, and I'm sure you see this in Canada as well, is that the news doesn't lead with the fact that it's parts per billion. They lead with the fact that whether it's CNN or whatever your local news, they lead with the fact that, you know, this very alarming header, which is like, pesticide residues found in your infant formula or your infant food or your Cheerios. And, um, you know, the, the groups like the Environmental Working Group that put out or, you know, push those types of messages out have a very definite agenda. And so, um, you know, the, the, the news media is looking for something that's going to grab people's interest and they don't really frame it up in a way that's going to educate people. Absolutely. I mean, the business of media is to sell media, right? And it's a business just like anything else. Of course, they will seize upon uh, the, uh, you know, the man bites dog story instead of the dog bites man story. That's uh, that's what happens. And they, uh, they very often misrepresent the, what the research uh, actually shows. Uh, There's one, one, a uh, story that you know I just came across recently, and uh, you you may have seen this, where the headline was uh, "Tomato juice is good for the heart, and uh, Bloody Mary a day will make you live longer." <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, and that's th- this is uh, the kind of headlines that we see. The yeah. actually more in the in the UK than here, but because you know they're great headline writers there, and then when you look into what really happened here. Uh, there is not a mention of, of um, vodka, you know, in, in the scientific right. paper. This was a story out of Japan where they enlisted a, a bunch of people 
And they were told that they were going to be given as much tomato juice, unsalted tomato juice, as they want. A company that makes tomato juice furnished this. <laughs> and, then, and then after a while, they questioned these people. And uh, there was basically no difference between the ones that drank a lot of tomato juice and ones that drank little. But when they tortured the data, uh, they discovered that, that people who had just borderline hypertension had uh, a slight reduction in the blood pressure when they drank several glasses of tomato juice every day, which is, you know, sort of an interesting finding, probably has no no scientific consequence, but it has absolutely nothing to do with going out after work and having a a Bloody Mary, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Well, you know, and a lot of times what I'll say is when you see these things or when somebody says something like, "Um, I took gluten gluten out of my diet and I feel so much better. And so, you know, much like those studies, you ask some questions like, well, in what form were you eating the gluten? Well, you know, I I had, you know, I would eat a pizza one or two nights a week and I had beer with my pizza and I had, you know, I would have a burger, big burger. And, you know, so was it the gluten or, and what did you replace that with? Well, I'm eating more fruits and vegetables and, you know, salmon. And, well, so, again, was the problem the gluten or was the problem, is it what you added to your diet rather than what you took out of it? So with the tomato juice, maybe those people were drinking caffeinated beverages or sodas. And so... Absolutely. When, when you have no control group, the, the study is right. essentially meaningless. Exactly. Right? Except for the media. <laughs> who, who who can uh, then go ahead and uh, and milk it? I had maybe someone. We should be, maybe we should be working in the media so that we control the message. What do you think? Well, that's what we're doing right now. Okay. <laughs> right? I, I I had a, a lady call me the other day, who said that uh, you know when I eat bread in North America, it makes me sick, and I go to Europe and oh, I have yeah. Italian bread, and it's it's wonderful, and uh, it's the it's the glyphosate that they're you know right. they're drenching the the wheat with here. Well, first of all, you know, nobody is drenching wheat with glyphosate. In fact, glyphosate is very rarely used to grow wheat. It's sometimes used uh, to dry the crop at the end of of the harvest. But for whatever reason, their Italian bread may be more preferred, you know, to them. has absolutely nothing to do with the trace amount of glyphosate. But of course, if you believe that it does... It does. You know, I mean, the, the mind controls so many things in the body. And, you well, know, the, the nocebo effect is very strong. Well, you know, and what I remember hearing this, because uh, I've worked a lot with the celiac and gluten-free community, and I, I heard that, I've heard that for years. And so in visiting wheat farmers and looking into where wheat that's grown in uh, North, uh, North America and Canada goes, a lot of it goes to Italy and is used to make breads and pasta. Right. So, so it's, so is it more the process that they're using over there? Because it's not the wheat and the wheat's not the problem. Maybe it's the process is different or maybe it's just like you said, the nocebo effect. Yeah. If you think it's better, very often it is. Anyway, we've got to take another little bit of break. I am speaking with dietitian Leah McGrath And uh, we're kind of chatting about uh, the problems in conveying proper information about nutrition. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. 
Gluten, grade A, milk emulsified, maltodextrin, alkalide, silicon dioxide, lots of sugar. Hey, all right. We're back with dietitian Leah McGrath. We're chatting with her. She's in North Carolina. We're talking about the ups and downs of uh, nutritional uh, information. And you mentioned earlier this whole concept of superfoods, which, of course, comes up. And I'm sure you get lots of questions about that. People want to know about blueberries, goji berries, acai berries, and what these will do. What do you say when they ask you about superfoods? You know, and and you're absolutely right, Dr. Joe. That's like a really popular um, question for dietitians. Like, can you name 10 superfoods that will prevent cancer? Can you name five that will superfoods that will make your skin better? Um, I, you know, I try and tell people that that you can't just rely on that one food. It's really um, your health and nutrition is about. Uh, more than just an individual food. It's about a lifestyle, your exercise, your activity, your genes, whether you smoke. So making it so, I understand why people want that. They want to make it, it's like the Ten Commandments. They want something really, really easy and simple to remember, but it's much more complicated than that. And that just provides a vehicle oftentimes for marketers to sell product it really is not, in the long run, very beneficial. Well, simple solutions are very seductive when it comes to complex yeah. problems, you know, and it uh, uh, you want to think that if you just eat blueberries every day, you're going to prevent all kinds of, uh, of problems. So let's, let's not buy into that. Let's buy into what we really should be telling people. So if you had to encapsulate uh, the best advice in terms of nutrition about the general features of a diet, what should people be doing? I think um, that they do need to pay attention to what's on their plate. I think that eating fruits and vegetables, and um, even if they have to go by very, in the United States, very basic guidelines, make half your plate fruits and vegetables is a great place for most people to start because we don't do that now here in the United States. So um, uh, limit your consumption of uh, high-fat, quick-serve kind of foods that are high in sodium and high in fat. Um, make sure that uh, try and cook at home if possible more often than not. And, um, you know, enjoy your food. Uh, it's not, don't see it as, it's not medicine. It's meant to be enjoyed. Um, so maybe choose your food accordingly so that you're um, enjoying your food with your friends and your family and uh, incorporate exercise and activity in in your life every day. What's your what's your take on sugar? Wow, that's uh, you know that's the one that's been demonized for the past couple of years. Sugar. Um, what's interesting to me is that a lot of times when I ask people, um, they'll say, "Well, I don't have any sugar in my diet. I know I, I avoid all sugar," but then you find out that they are using honey with great abandon and maple syrup and agave syrup. And, and then you kind of point out, well, these technically are still sugar. They don't understand that because in their mind, sugar is just the white granulated stuff that you have on the table or in your cabinet or it's in foods as sugar. Um, I think uh, sugar has, just like all types of different foods and ingredients, has a place, but um, it's 
the extent to which there are added sugars in our food is um, uh, more than most of us need to consume. Well, to me, so the, the biggest uh, culprit are the soft drinks. Yeah, well, you know, and definitely that. that um, but I tell you what, uh, soft drinks get a lot of heat for uh, the fact that they're a big culprit in obesity. But if you, at least here in the United States, if you walk around and look what's, what teenagers are drinking, it's not soft drinks anymore. It's coffee drinks. It's massive uh, frappuccinos. It's huge energy drinks. So I don't want people to get so focused on soft drinks as the only enemy when it comes to sugar because um, especially teens and young adults are getting an awful lot of added sugar in those types of beverages. Oh yeah, and and also many of the cereals that that uh, you know they guzzle are loaded with uh, with sugar. Well, the, the you yeah. know the basic problem is that sugar tastes good. Yeah, <laughs> sugar. I mean, sugar is kind of like the bacon of the pastry world, right? Sugar makes everything better. That's what you know. They say bacon makes everything better. Well, sugar. Yeah, I'm talking about bacon, which is which is the fastest growing food in North America, interestingly enough. And yet the International Agency for Research on Cancer puts bacon in its category one, and that category is known human carcinogen. Right. And like you know I, and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter to people because uh, I like to say that that while people may think science, they eat taste. And exactly. the taste will trump trump the science and they're so they're out there eating bacon, not worried about the fact that you know, it's in category one by IARC. What they are then concerned about is glyphosate, which is in category 2A, which is a, a probable human carcinogen, not, not even proven, right? right? That's what they worry about. But they're very happy eating uh, bacon, which is in category 1, and very often washing it down with some alcoholic beverage. And alcohol is also in category 1 as a known carcinogen. Now, did, did they take coffee out? Because, I mean, it, like here we'll have, you know, bacon and eggs and a cup of coffee right. for breakfast and and coffee, uh, coffee was also... Oh, yeah, there. yeah. Well, luckily in, in California where they were going to have that ridiculous warning because of Proposition 65 right. on coffee, so a judge just uh, uh, came to coffee's rescue and saying said that, uh, no, there doesn't have to be such a warning because there's absolutely no evidence about coffee being a carcinogen. Okay, yeah, Leah, we're almost out of time, but let me ask you one final thing that I always ask my guests who are experts and who know what they're talking about. Uh, since you've been involved in, in this business, have you made any change in your personal diet? Since I've been a dietitian, yeah. have I made any change in mm -hmm. my personal diet? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Or, um, I probably don't take supplements like I used to. That's probably the biggest change. Um, I used to um, be a big proponent of taking supplements, and now I do not. Well, good. You're following the literature because the literature <laughs> certainly shows that there is no evidence, except, of course, in uh, when a deficiency has been clinically demonstrated. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for sharing those ideas with us. And you're it's welcome. it's nice to see that uh, you're doing a lot of good things down there in North Carolina. And uh, I suspect that you're dealing a lot with obesity, uh, as I see in my travels in the U.S. So yeah. best of luck, and we'll chat again. Thanks, Dr. Joe. Thanks. So that's it. We're smack out of time. You'll be listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. 
Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.